This program is a presentation of UCTV for educational and non-commercial use only. I've been asked tonight to be a little provocative, which is utterly foreign to my nature, but I'll try to improvise uh, in thinking about four kinds of energy surprises, megawatts, hypercars, hydrogen, and also some policy innovations to make things happen faster. And I'd like to suggest that the future of energy in this century, at least, is super-efficient and use, especially in new ways that can make big savings cost less than small ones. It's increasingly diverse, dispersed, renewable sources that happen not just to cost less, but to be resilient and to make major failures impossible by design. Um, there will be a shift of the energy carrier for high-quality uses, increasingly from electricity to hydrogen, and if you put all three of those trends together, you get super-efficient hydrogen-fueled fuel cell cars that are also plugged in as power plants, as distributed generators, when they're parked. Uh, I think policy innovations to speed adoption and to uh, help articulate and act on the large unrecognized degree of consensus in this country on energy policy will also be increasingly important. We live in a world full of surprises, especially in energy. In a way, energy policy is defined by surprises. Uh, this uh, graph shows the 113-year uh, history of world oil price movements. Um, if it looks a bit like a ball of yarn that a kitten got into, that's not an accident. The price movements have been perfectly random like any commodity, you know, get used to it. That's what commodities do. All that happened after the embargo in 73 is that volatility tripled. Another way to look at the history of those surprises uh, <clears throat> is to plot the world real price of oil against how much oil the world used. Demand grew rapidly in the early 70s at very low prices. Uh, after the Arab embargo in 73, price went way up, so demand grew a lot slower. And then when the Shah fell in 79, we had the second oil shock, which was even more severe. In fact, prices went up so much, the demand went down. And demand went down so much, the market got so soft, the price went down. That little spike is the Gulf War. And uh, I guess if I were to complete this graph, it would be, oh, let's see, it went a long level in 2001, and then it went down a bit. But uh, <clears throat> each of those right-angle turns uh, is very familiar to anybody in energy policy. A lot of people started their careers at each of those corner-turning events, and uh, we're not done with surprises yet. There will be lots more, especially as war or peace breaks out of the Middle East. Now, you can also get surprises on the demand side, and here's one. Uh, I was heavily criticized for suggesting in that article Dan mentioned back in 76 in Foreign Affairs that rather than following the 
official forecasts up toward the northeast corner, U.S. energy use could actually stabilize and go down as we gradually wrung out a lot of the losses in converting, distributing, and especially using the energy so we would use less and enjoy it more. We would support the same growing volume of hot showers, cold beer, comfort and mobility, and so on, but use the energy more productively with smarter technologies that cost less. Well, this was really heretical, and there's actually a yay-thick congressional hearing book with, I think, about three dozen tedious responses to fatuous critiques. It's, it's really fun to go back and read that so-called paperweight, uh, except we have better things to do now. Uh, I think most of the people who contributed to it would be rather surprised at what they were saying back then. But interestingly, this heavy black line shows what's actually happened so far. And we're not doing too badly, but we now know how to do a lot better than the original target. And uh, renewables, meanwhile, have lagged almost two decades behind. I'd actually assumed in, in uh, these curves a consistently supportive rather than a largely hostile public policy environment. That makes a big difference. But I think renewables are now starting to gain momentum very nicely. Now, these, these two ways of thinking about the energy future, the so-called hard path and soft path, come from asking different questions. Uh, the upper curve, the hard path, comes from asking where can we get more energy, more of any kind from any source at any price, and it's the and, and then of course all you have to do is build the supply to fit the, the forecast demand. Uh, in this view, uh, you tend to go to ever larger scale. Uh, that absolutely requires central planning, and if the market doesn't like what the plan says, then you just subsidize it to make it work out that way. Now, in the soft path, on the other hand, you're asking, what do we want the energy for? What are the jobs we're trying to do with the energy? And for each of those uh, end uses, how much energy of what kind or quality at what scale from what source will do the job in the cheapest way? This is much closer to asking what happens when all ways to produce or save energy actually get to compete. Uh, and then your challenge is to build a balanced least cost portfolio of investments. Uh, balanced does not mean uh, the Chinese restaurant menu theory where you pick one item from column A and one from column B and so on, uh, or you pick one of every kind of option until all powerful constituencies are satisfied. Uh, the point of least cost is to provide the services you want in the cheapest way. Uh, and the market is very good at producing that kind of equilibration, especially if you are neutral as to scale technology and ownership. Uh, <clears throat> but these two futures have profoundly different consequences. The hard path costs a lot. It tends to boom and bust. It tends to require federal preemption because uh, it's pretty controversial, especially the people, uh, people who, who don't want things built on top of them. It tends to be polluting. The centralized systems are easily disrupted by accident or malice. Uh, renewables don't play much of a role, and waste actually gets encouraged because once you build a lot of supply, you want people to use it. On the other hand, in a soft path, <clears throat> the total cost is lower. There's a lot less risk of overshoot because you can build as you need, pay as you go, and tune the uh, shorter lead time, more granular technologies to that unpredictable development of demand. Um, 
It tends to be much more a states' rights local control future politically. It's more consensual and benign. And the diverse and decentralized systems are a lot more resilient. Renewables actually are not a, an afterthought, but the key. And efficient use dominates over everything because that's the cheapest. Well, we have lately had an odd recurrence of the hard path view that the job of energy policymakers is to forecast demand and build to meet it. In fact, the Cheney Task Force used a particularly bad forecasting model, which I don't think any energy business would dream of using <laughs> as a basis for investment decisions. And the, the idea is that, that we who know better than the market what is required to build a secure energy future for everyone will simply have to plan it and uh, pass the laws and somehow the market will eat it. On the other hand, uh, what seems to happen more in practice is the least cost emphasis, which in practice means demand side, that means best buys first, in which all options, whether they're for saving or producing energy, get to compete fairly at honest prices and the market sorts it out. This notion that the market equilibrates, I think, is one of the major lessons of the past 30 years, and it's pretty basic to economic theory, but somehow it's gotten forgotten lately. And also, I think the logical political conclusion, if you believe in markets, uh, is, is uh, to follow Ladz's advice of uh, govern a great country as you'd fry a small fish. Don't poke at it too much. Now, my personal bias uh, is, as you may gather, in favor of the soft path sets of questions and answers, because uh, as a student of energy policy over the past 30 years, it seems to be what works uh, to have full and fair competition and not try to guess what the technology answers are going to be. So I feel that there ought to be a burden on those who prefer their own pet technologies to explain why we all ought to pay for them and uh, get out of their way. Uh, but really what wins in the market ought to be an empirical question. And I think the answer is already in if you just read our own government's energy statistics. They tell us that the reduction in energy used per unit of GDP over the past quarter century is now the largest effective supply of energy services. It's providing two-fifths of them. Uh, and it's the fastest growing major source. The only stuff growing faster is, is uh, a few renewables like wind and photovoltaics, but they're much smaller. The intensity reduction is now equivalent in supply terms to over five times our domestic oil production, over three times our net oil imports, 13 times our Persian Gulf imports. And by the way, we've doubled our oil productivity in the past quarter century. Uh, our electric productivity is comparatively in its infancy. We've only just started since 96 uh, on a national scale to improve it uh, steadily at about 1.6% a year. And the potential for further improvements is huge. We're, we're just starting on this whole adventure. Uh, we've already cut about 200 billion bucks a year off the national energy bill but we're still wasting about $300 billion a year worth of energy. And that total keeps going up as we learn more. Uh, efficiency seems to be an expanding resource. Now, California has done better than the rest of the country, and especially with electricity. Uh, this blue line shows per capita <clears throat> use of electricity uh, over the past 40 years in California, and the magenta line is for all the rest of the country. 
So something was different in California. What was different is that starting in the mid-70s, the state put in uh, efficiency standards for buildings and appliances and uh, started encouraging and even rewarding utilities to help customers get more efficient, and that really paid off. This uh, difference represents many, many billions of dollars of investment that California didn't need to make in electric supply, and that went into more productive uses. Now, to judge from, at least at the time, what the media reported, although we now see some, some quiet retrenching, uh, the 2000-2001 electricity crisis in California was caused by soaring demand, which didn't actually occur. Well, there were tightened reserve margins, but they remained adequate. It was supposedly caused by California's not building any power plants in the 90s. Have any of you heard that myth? You know, a lot of very senior people who should have known better said that. If they look at the state or federal statistics, they will find that California added in the 90s more, more generating capacity than it has nuclear plants. They added at least 4,500 megawatts, but they were non-utility and generally decentralized, so they were apparently invisible, even though they kept the lights on. Uh, we were also told that there was a dreadful shortage of capacity, so we need to build lots more power plants. Well, actually, funny thing, there wasn't a shortage of capacity. There was a shortage of its operation. Uh, <clears throat> in a disaster designed by a committee, this was brought on by a lot of causes, but most of all, nutty regulation, which, first of all, had the utilities sell off their fossil fuel plants to such a small number of buyers that seven firms controlled two-thirds of the bidding space, and each one could move the market all by itself without any collusion, although the way the data were published actually permitted virtual collusion that would be undetectable. And it soon became clear to them that each of them could make more money by selling less electricity at a higher price rather than selling more electricity to lower prices as had been promised. Well, they're in business to make money, so they rather quickly figured this out. And as you'll see from the front page of today's Cron, uh, they were apparently quite creative about it, as you'd expect from smart, well-motivated people. So about 10,000 megawatts, or a fifth of the capacity, started calling in sick. Now, some of it probably was sick. These were old plants run hard. But a lot of it probably wasn't sick. Uh, <clears throat> I think in economic theory, in these conditions, you make the most profit if you dispatch half your capacity and idle the other half, and that seems to be about what happened. And meanwhile, the state had defunded and disincentivized uh, efficient use, so there went another at least 1,500 megawatts. There was a hydro drought that cost up to 5,000 megawatts and so on. But uh, most of the problem was these plants calling in sick, and that was the main reason that a system that had handily met a 53 billion watt peak load in summer 99 was unable to meet a 29 billion watt peak load in January 2001. It isn't as if half the plants suddenly disappeared and somehow wandered off into Mexico. They were there, but too many of them weren't running. Now, there were about 20 other linked causes, and quite a lot of them actually came from some equally crazy choices on the gas side, like disincentivizing the winter storage of gas. So winter storage went down 87% because nobody had an incentive to do it. And with that and cold weather and a pipeline accident, it was just a perfect storm on the gas side, which, of course, made a lot of the electricity. Uh, well, then there were some nice things happening, too. When customers realized the lights were going out, they rapidly undid, in just six months, the previous five or ten years of demand growth. That surprised a lot of people. 
And that plus long-term power contracts put out the fire, so now we're arguing mainly about the water damage and it was it arson. Uh, uh, and now supply is in overshoot as it is regionally and nationally. Uh, by the way, the California Energy Commission has published a very nice analysis <coughs> on what uh, <coughs> the demand response was like. At, at, at a maximum in June 2001, the customers dropped by 14% the weather-corrected peak electric load per dollar of GDP, and they had done that in six months. Now, the, <coughs> the magenta part of the graph here is the voluntary reduction through behavior, like turning off your air conditioner or setting the thermostat higher. And that is, of course, a temporary effect, which the Energy Commission projected would uh, drop off during the winter and come back this summer as it gets hotter so there's more air conditioning and perhaps if, if there's any problem with electricity or a, a hint of it, people will start doing, although at a smaller scale, the sorts of, of uh, conserving behavior they did before. But meanwhile, you notice this blue wedge down here. This is the response to state programs. The biggest demand side implementation in history is underway in California now, billions of dollars going into more efficient lights, appliances, and so on. Um, white roofs on buildings, a lot of things developed here at Lawrence Berkeley Lab. And uh, those are not temporary behavioral changes, they're permanent technological changes. And as those gain traction, uh, quite a lot of the demand will go away for good, not, not in a speculative or temporary fashion. Uh, and by the way, <clears throat> if you look at the flat per capita electric use for the last 40 years versus the last, uh, let's see, this is, if I can read it correctly, it's 20 years of economic history. Um, sorry, it's fuzzy, that's how the graph was published. Uh, <clears throat> you'll see that the year-over-year the -year percent change in employment, for example, was really quite robust, and even at the height of the crisis, uh, in 2001, the economy was still growing, although a lot slower, in tune with the national downturn starting. We've also found, I think any student of this subject will, will realize that efficiency can be pretty fast. And we have some great examples from California, like from 83 to 85, the 10 million people served by Southern California Edison Company were cutting its 10-year-ahead forecast of peak demand by 8.5% every year through demand-side measures that cost about 1% as much as building and running new power plants. In 1990, New England Electric System captured 90% of a pilot program in small business retrofitting in two months. And the same year, Pacific Gas and Electric signed up a quarter of its new commercial construction projects, that is, of, of those in its territory, commercial uh, sector buildings, for design improvements in three months. And they said to themselves, oh, well, that was kind of easier than we thought. Let's raise the bar. So they did. And the next year, they got their target for the year in the first nine days of January. Talk about pent-up demand. But what that also tells you is the marketers, a little over a decade ago, were actually getting pretty good at this stuff. And we now have even better new delivery methods, which don't just market megawatts, save watts, so as to maximize how many people save, 
But they also make markets in megawatts, so we maximize competition in who saves and how, so we can keep driving the savings and quality up and the cost down. On a national scale, by the way, you think this is a big ponderous country to do anything in? Look at the six years, 79 to 85, the economy grew 16%, oil use fell 15%, Persian Gulf oil imports fell 87%. And the most important thing about that was, was uh, car efficiency driven largely by standards. And by the way, if we had kept doing that one more year, then ever since 1986 we would not have needed a drop of oil from the Persian Gulf which is sad to think about because when President Reagan rolled back the standards in 86, he actually doubled Persian Gulf imports in the first year and basically undiscovered one Arctic refuge's worth of oil right away. Um, and uh, then in 91, of course, we put a bunch of our young people in 0.56 mile-a-gallon tanks and 17 feet-per-gallon equivalent aircraft carriers because we had not put them in 32-mile-a-gallon cars. If we had done that and nothing else, we would not uh, have needed any oil from the Persian Gulf. There were, of course, many other things at stake in the Gulf War than just oil, but I really have a hard time believing we would have sent half a million troops there if Kuwait just grew broccoli. Another thing that students of energy policy quickly learn is that efficiency improvements can be fast, whereas traditional supply expansion tends to be slow. And most people end up buying efficiency because it's a lot cheaper than supply, given the choice. So efficiency often reaches the finish line first. More of it's bought, it comes in faster, and then there's too little revenue to pay for the supply that was built meanwhile, potentially bankrupting its producers. That's not good for energy security, it's not good for prosperity, and it's a lot better not to get into that situation. Uh, we've been here in California, by the way, <laughs> in the 1980s, uh, in 1984, this state had a 37 billion watt peak load and had committed 12 and was in the process of buying another 7 billion watts of demand side resources, of which ultimately about 10 of the 19 were procured and 9 were left on the table. By March 85, the state had 20 billion watts of independent generation, mostly renewable, on firm order. Over half of it was built or being built. And new offers of private generation were coming in at the rate of 9 billion watts, or a quarter of total peak demand, every year. If that zoo had gone on for the rest of the year, it would have displaced every thermal plant in the state. But in fact, uh, in April, the CPUC suspended most of the new contracts. And by then, there was already 13 billion watts signed up, another ADOT in negotiation. It's amazing what happens when you offer a fair price. And this transition from scarcity to glut took only two years, and yet for years afterwards, two dozen other states and provinces were still trying to sell California their surplus power all at the same time, as if there was still a shortage. Now, we're trying to reproduce this experiment just to make sure it gives the same answer the second time. Uh, after the California power crisis, a bunch of developers got either panicky or greedy, and planned as of early 2001 to add capacity equivalent to 83% of the peak load in California, 96% of that in the western region, two-thirds in the country, which is all consistent with the vice president's call to build one new power plant a week. Uh, however, I guess we called the overshoot in February, Barron's in August 2001, Wall Street over last summer pretty much pulled the plug, 
uh, and said, where is this demand coming from? Uh, how are you planning to repay this debt? And uh, had they not pulled the plug, or to the extent they haven't entirely, then we can still expect the same results. Because now we've got not just fast demand-side management, but also equally or almost as fast distributed generation, uh, wind machine, microturbines, and so on, that can come in much faster than traditional large supply. So that's two things that can outrun slow supply. This is a very bad movie. We've already seen it. We don't need to see it again. And no smart investor will be part of that. However, not all investors are smart. Now, I want to give you some examples of how much further we can go on the demand side. And let me start with some examples from buildings of how much cheaper it is to save than to produce electricity. I'll take you in a minute to my passive solar banana farm where I live and work. Uh, where we've harvested 27 banana crops up in the Rockies where it can go to minus 47F. Uh, and we've actually done the same trick in an experimental couple of houses in California that are comfortable without air conditioning at up to 115F, uh, both with lower construction cost. Or in Bangkok, a really difficult, steamy climate, an architect friend built a house that used a tenth the normal amount of air conditioning energy, cost less, I'm sorry, cost the same to build, nothing extra, and was more comfortable. In big new office buildings, we can improve efficiency by a factor of five or ten, but they build faster and cheaper, and they give better human and market performance. I'll show you in a minute how you can retrofit a big all-glass and no-windows Chicago office tower to save three-quarters of its energy at the same cost as a regular renovation that saves nothing. I think our record so far uh, figuring out how to improve the air conditioning of a, an existing California office was a 97% saving with uh, good economics and better comfort. Well, let's go to the passive solar banana farm first of all. I live 7,100 feet up in the Rockies and uh, we've seen minus 47F, minus 44C. You can get frost any day of the year, so you might say there are two seasons, winter and July. And uh, you, we, we've also observed 39 days of continuous cloud in midwinter, so it's not a reliably sunny climate. And yet, if you come in out of a snowstorm to this atrium, there you are in the banana jungle where you could get your advanced lizarding lesson from the senior tutor. Um, and then you realize there's no heating system. Why not? Well, because we don't need one, and it's cheaper up front not to have it. Huh? It's real cold out there. Well, if you ask most engineers how much insulation should your house have in such a cold place, you'd probably be told, well, just the amount that will pay for itself over the years from the saved heating bill, heating fuel or electricity, which sounds sensible. I mean, you don't want to pay more than it's worth, do you? But it's wrong because it leaves out something important, not just the environment. It leaves out the... capital cost of the heating system. Bingo. In other words, the furnace, pipes, pumps, ducts, fans, uh, controls, wires, and fuel supply all cost something to install. In fact, it turns out they cost more than you would pay or than we did pay for super insulation, super windows, and air-to-air -air heat exchangers that make all that equipment unnecessary. So our cost went down building with no furnace, and then we took that saved money plus another $1.50 a square foot and used it to save also 99% of the water heating energy, half the water, and 90% of the household electricity. So for a 4,000 square foot house, 
if we didn't make any with solar and just bought it all from the grid, we'd be paying five bucks a month for our household electricity. All of these savings, by the way, pay for themselves in 10 months, and that's 1983 technology. Now you can do a lot better. How about a hot climate? Well, Lawrence Berkeley Lab and Natural Resources Defense Council and Rocky Mountain Institute joined with Pacific Gas and Electric in the so-called Act Squared experiment, and one of its eight or nine projects was a, an ordinary-looking tract house in Davis, which Davis Energy Group designed to be comfortable as hot as it gets, which on occasion can be 113F in Davis. Uh, it didn't get above 84 in this house while it was over 105 for a three-day heat storm, and there's no air conditioner. Neighbors were coming in, I'm told, from neighboring houses that couldn't cope because they were badly designed, and their three- to five-ton air conditioners weren't enough, and they were more comfortable in this house that had good design and no air conditioner. We figured that if it were a general practice and not a one-off experiment, it would cost about 1800 bucks less than normal to build, 1600 over the years less than normal to maintain, not counting the energy savings. Now, that, those got compromised by some deliberate choices during construction, but the original design was an 82% saving compared with the decade ago strictest energy code in the country. And by the way, the last seven things we did to achieve the savings didn't save enough energy to pay for themselves, but they were a good deal when you remembered that they also let you get rid of the last one and a half tons of air conditioner and the associated ductwork. So again, we were counting energy and capital savings. By the way, the new method of wall construction, insulated twice as well, was stronger, was hundreds of dollars cheaper, and used only a quarter as much wood. We later did a similar trick in Stanford Ranch, air conditioning uh, free at uh, 115F. So obviously from these two examples, there's something wrong with the notion of diminishing returns, which says the more energy or resources you save, the more and more steeply the cost of the next unit of savings goes up until it gets too expensive and you have to stop. Now, this is sometimes true at the level of components. It's also often untrue at the level of components. For example, empirically, there is no correlation whatever between efficiency and price for ordinary motors up to at least 300 horsepower. You'd think that the efficient motors would cost more because they have more and better copper and iron. Maybe they do cost more to make, but they're not priced higher. I don't know why, but I'll take it. And the same turns out to be true for a whole bunch of other kinds of equipment. So around our shop, the motto is, in God we trust, all others bring data. In other words, don't assume from economic theory that efficient stuff costs more. Maybe it doesn't. Let's go shop and find out. And the way you can make this uh, diminishing returns idea definitely untrue and get expanding returns uh, is to combine components into systems in such a way that when you keep going and save some more, the cost actually comes down again to less than you started. So a very large saving can actually cost less than small or no savings. And rather than getting there the long way around, why don't we just tunnel straight through the cost barrier to that destination so that we eliminate lots of muda, nice Japanese word for waste, uh, and it actually costs less. Well, there are two broad ways to do this. One is to get multiple benefits from single expenditures. For example, you get 10 different benefits from super windows, 18 from very efficient uh, motors and lighting ballasts and so on. And, you know, why are we just counting one? Um, I'll come back to that point. And the other way is to piggyback on retrofits you're doing anyway 
for another reason, as in this 200,000 square foot curtain wall office building in Illinois, where because of age, the seals around the windows were failing, so it's necessary to replace the glass. And normally you'd replace it with the same kind of glass that was there, which is dark double bronze heat absorbing glass plus a gray film. Only 9% of the light could come in. It was gloomy like a cave. But we found instead windows that would let in almost six times as much light, a tenth less unwanted heat. They would block the flow of heat and noise four times better. And with that and deep daylighting and efficient lights and office equipment, we could cut the cooling load by fourfold. And then instead of renovating the big old air conditioning system, we could use one four times smaller and four times more efficient, and it would cost 200,000 bucks less than renovating the old one. And that would pay for all the other stuff, like the better windows and lights. So you'd end up saving three quarters of the energy. It would be more comfortable. Oh, by the way, they didn't do it. Um, it turns out this property was, uh, was controlled by a leasing broker who got a commission every time she'd lease a floor, and she didn't want to delay the commissions long enough to do the retrofit, so she didn't. But then it was so costly and disagreeable, nobody wanted to be there, so they had to unload the whole building on a bottom feeder at a distressed price. It's okay, we'll, we'll deal with their competitors across the street, but it was a nice example of market failure in action. Now, I've asked you to believe a few impossible things before dinner, so let me, if you'll indulge me, rearrange your mental furniture a little bit about what's possible and how. I used to work for an inventor called Edwin Land, who said that people who seem to have had a new idea have often just stopped having an old idea. Well, in that spirit, you've probably all seen this problem that's been in textbooks on creative thinking for 30 years, and it's usually framed as find the solution that will connect all these nine dots with four lines without lifting your pen from the paper. So you're supposed to think one, two, three, four, oops, five. Hmm, that didn't work. One, two, hmm, now what? That isn't going to work. And of course, what you're supposed to do is think outside the box and come up with this. Yeah, we'll get there. And indeed, one professor who teaches this might be Ed DeBono came in, I'm told, a bit irked because it seems one of his students had just said she could do it in three lines. And I didn't see this at first because I was thinking of these as little tiny mathematical dots. But in fact, they're, as you see, quite plump dots. So as long as your paper's wide enough, yes, you can do it with three. But then the students saw this and started to feel rather liberated. You know what happens then? They started to solve this problem in one line. The great engineer Paul McCready showed me some of these solutions. Um, there are more, which I leave to your imagination, but let's start with the origami solution. You just fold up the paper. Or there's the geographer's solution. You use a really long line. <laughs> Or the mechanical engineers being tool-using critters just get out the scissors and say, you didn't say we couldn't cut out the dots. <laughs> or there was a statistician who crumpled up the paper and said, if I stab this over and over again with a pencil, eventually I will go through all nine dots at the same moment. And actually, uh, the one I like best came from a nine-year-old girl who said, you didn't say it had to be a skinny line, so I used a fat line. <laughs> And there are more. So what that tells us is that the original design assignment was misstated as find the solution with four lines. This tyranny of the word the, as if there were just one way to do it, put us back in the box and kept us from being properly 
creative in coming up with more elegantly frugal solutions. Well, one of our industrial clients had what Land called a sudden cessation of stupidity when they were designing a factory that was supposed to move some heat around in a circle using a standard thing called an industrial pumping loop. And the top firm optimized it to use 95 horsepower of pumps. Well, after Jans Kjellem in Holland redesigned it, it used 7 horsepower, 92% less. And this factor 12 reduction in pumping power reduced capital cost, and it worked better in every way. How do you do that with a supposedly optimized design? There wasn't any new technology, but there were two important changes in the design mentality. Uh, and you'll find a lot of examples, and this one in, in our book, Natural Capitalism, which you can download for free from natcap.org. What were the two changes in design mentality that gave that factor 12 saving? Well, one of them was to use big pipes and small pumps rather than small pipes and big pumps. The friction in a pipe goes down is almost the fifth power of diameter. So how big should the pipe be? Well, the engineering books say make the pipe just as fat as will repay its greater capital cost out of the saved pumping energy over the years, which sounds logical, except that it leaves out the... The what? Capital cost of the pump and motor and inverter and electricals, all the stuff that has to be big enough to overcome the friction in the pipe, that's not counted. And yet the size and roughly the cost of that equipment will go down as almost the fifth power of pipe diameter, whereas the cost of the fatter pipe itself will go up as only about the second power of diameter. So when we do what the textbook says and optimize the pipe by itself as a component, we're pessimizing the system. What we ought to do is optimize the whole thing, pay a bit more for fatter pipe and a lot less for smaller pumping equipment, and the whole thing gets cheaper. Well, it's sort of obvious when you think about it. If you ever find a text that gets it right, let me know. We need to write that one. And the other change we made was to lay out the pipes first, then the equipment. It's normally done the opposite way. Normally you put the tanks and boilers and so on in some traditional place, call in the pipe fitters and say, please come connect A to B. But by then, A and B are rather far apart. There's other stuff in between. They're at the wrong height. They face the wrong way. And by the, pipe, the time the pipe worms its way across from A to B, it has so many bends in it that friction is about three to six times what it should have been with a straight shot. Now, the pipe fitters think this is great. You pay them by the hour. They mark up the extra pipes and fittings. They're not paying for your bigger pumping equipment or your bigger electric bill forever. But for you as owner, it would be more intelligent to have short, straight pipes than long, crooked pipes. And just getting that right and the size of the pipe gives you that 92% saving in pumping energy, lower capital cost, and so on, better performance. And by the way, it's easier to insulate short, straight pipes. So in this case, we also saved 70 kilowatts of heat loss with a three-month payback. But then I realized, hey, wait a minute, we forgot a number of important benefits. This whole system is smaller, it's lighter, it's quieter, those have a value. It has a wonderfully clean layout for maintenance access, but won't need much. In fact, it'll be a lot more reliable, there's less to go wrong, and it'll last longer because those elbows aren't worn away by fluid turning a corner. I did a rough estimate. If we'd properly counted those benefits, we'd have saved more like maybe 98% instead of 92% of the pumping energy. So we were going in the right direction and fell short of where we should have been because we didn't count all those multiple benefits from the single expenditures. But, not bad, uh, 
especially when you remember that with thermal power plants, you have to feed in about 10 units of fuel to get through all these compounding losses and get one unit of flow in the pipe. So that means if you save one unit of flow or friction in the pipe, you're saving about 10 units of fuel and cost and pollution back at the power plant. And the reason I've dwelt on this example is not just that pumping is the biggest use of motors, which use most of the world's electricity, and you get that tenfold leverage, but also that practically everything that uses energy has been misdesigned in this same way. And if you do proper whole system design, you'll get typically half to one order of magnitude energy savings with lower cost and better performance. And we've shown this in a wide range of technical systems. So that's a lot of room to improve engineering practice and pedagogy. Um, so what I'm suggesting is instead of optimizing components for single benefits, we optimize whole systems for multiple benefits. Uh, you know, the arch that holds up the middle of my house does 12 different things. It has 12 benefits, but I only pay for it once. In the front of the Lotus Elise car, there's a front-end component that does seven different things, and they only pay for it once. It's a nice kind of design, but it really is design. It's not what we call infectious repetitis, where you just copy the previous set of drawings. And it's also not what in England they call catnap, cheapest available technology, narrowly avoiding prosecution. It's not a compliance mentality. <laughs> it's a design optimization mentality, bearing in mind Einstein's remark that everything should be made as simple as possible, but not simpler. Now, in industry, if you apply this mentality properly, you end up saving half of motor system electricity, typically. The retrofit after tax... Uh, return is typically around one or two hundred percent a year and we've gotten similar returns saving over half the energy used in microchip fabrication plants to produce chilled water and clean air. If they were designed right we couldn't do that. Uh, we've recently worked on a refinery retrofit starting with a very efficient refinery showing how to save over two-fifths of the energy costs with very attractive returns, a major increase in yield and other benefits. I led the design once of a chemical plant, new plant, where we could save three-quarters of the electricity and make it about a tenth cheaper and faster to build. You could do better than that in ship pabs and data centers. Uh, we redesigned a supermarket, 70 to 90 percent saving, better cost, better food safety, better merchandising. And there are even more radical things coming along, like the art of microfluidics, which can sometimes condense a large chemical plant into about the size of a watermelon, or there's the materials efficiency revolution, which make things out of less material, make them last longer, and then reuse. So, for example, for 37 years, I've carried this cup in my pocket, stainless steel, which has by now saved an awful lot of paper and plastic cups and will probably go on doing so long after I'm gone. And, of course, there are side benefits, like people do more and better work in buildings where they can see what they're doing, hear themselves think, feel more comfortable, and breathe cleaner air. And that's typically worth 10 or 100 times as much as energy savings and can be marketed accordingly. Now, meanwhile, that's all the demand side. There are su surprises coming on the supply side. For about a century, ending maybe two decades ago, power plants cost more but were less reliable than the transmission and distribution grid. So it made sense to get economical and reliable power supply to share a lot of power plants through the grid. 
and help them back each other up. But in the past couple of decades, the opposite has started to be true, that now power plants cost less but are more reliable than the grid. So to get cheap and reliable power supply, you have to make the stuff at or near the customer's distributed generation. Not everybody has noticed yet that those two basic assumptions have reversed. But the market has started to notice for other reasons, and now central thermal power plants, the traditional mainstay, stopped getting more efficient in the 60s, they stopped getting bigger in the 70s, cheaper in the 80s, and bought in the 90s. That business has pretty much gone away. The new distributed technologies, on the other hand, are growing rapidly, and there are a dozen different forces driving a distributed architecture for our electric system, which Wall Street really likes because the capital risk is a lot lower if you buy uh, small, modular, short lead time things. And the new technologies are coming in fast. Europe's planning 22% renewable electricity by 2010, uh, which is, by the way, uh, <coughs> about twice the U.S. share and about twice the target Congress just set for 2020. Uh, wind growing about 30% a year, photovoltaics often faster than that, are the fastest growing supply technologies on Earth. In fact, global wind capacity has in the last few years been adding more every year than nuclear added each year all through the 90s. It's 18% of the electricity in Denmark right now, should be 21 next year. Sometimes locally it's over 100% on windy days. Thousands of microturbines have been shipped and are in service. There are some hundreds of phosphoric acid fuel cells out there, which are costly but can be worthwhile, even in retrofit. Next thing to come at us will be cheap plastic fuel cells, cheap solar cells, especially those that make electricity as part of the structure of the building, the roof or the walls or the windows. They're starting very fast liftoff, and in places like Sacramento, which has roughly half the grid-connected residential solar systems in the country. Um, they can be, <clears throat> they're, they're starting to be competitive just around this year, next year, uh, just on a straight commodity cost. Long-term, when we have a lot of them, they'll probably be down to a nickel a kilowatt hour. I'm just finishing edits for production on a book last Sunday <laughs> on small is profitable, the hidden economic benefits of making electrical resources the right size. It's a semi-technical book that lays out 205, at last count, distributed benefits that collectively make decentralized generators about 10 times more valuable than we thought. Uh, and we've also already put out a booklet that applies that approach specifically to fuel cells. Actually, if you count those distributed benefits, solar cells can be cost-effective right now in most applications in most places. What about oil? Well, it's almost unrelated to electricity. Only a couple of percent of our electricity is made of oil. Only a couple of percent of our oil makes electricity. Um, and this country uses a quarter of the world's oil but owns only 3% of the reserves. So it doesn't sound like we can drill our way out of that one. Uh, <clears throat> oil is almost two-fifths of our primary energy use, but it's 97% <coughs> of our transportation energy. And even if we had completely domestic oil supply, that wouldn't insulate us from those volatile world oil prices I showed in an early graph, because we're price takers in a world market. And we're more self-reliant in oil than our allies and trading partners, so we're all at risk on this one. Uh, our oil is almost half domestic, 
It's a quarter from OPEC, but mostly Western Hemisphere. Only an eighth of our oil comes from the Persian Gulf. But this is a global problem. Again, our allies and trading partners are much more Gulf dependent. There is still a lot of oil in the world, but the cheap oil will increasingly be concentrated in the Middle East. And if you think that's a problem, there are basically three and only three things you can do about it in a market economy. The basic problem with oil is that we've been pumping it up longer and more than anybody else, so we're more depleted than anybody else. And there are three things you can do about the fact that on the margin, you know, the next barrel costs more at home than to import it from the world market. And the first solution is called, properly, protectionism. You don't often hear that name, but that's the right name for taxing foreign oil or subsidizing domestic oil to make foreign oil look costlier or domestic oil cheaper than they really are. Uh, there's about, well, I forget how many, but a lot of billions of dollars of that in the House Energy Bill. This, of course, violates free market principles and WTO rules. And also, subsidies of domestic oil are particularly dumb because they make us use it less efficiently, which is part of the problem. And the logic of protectionism always escapes me anyway because it suggests that if we're depleting our domestic oil too fast, the solution is to deplete it faster. Huh? <laughs> this does not compute. Now, what our allies do, most of whom have no oil, is trade. They buy the oil wherever it's cheapest, which is typically from abroad, and they're better than we are at paying for it. The third option, if you don't happen to like either of those, is called substitution. Economics teaches us a lot about that. And it means replacing the oil we don't want to import with more efficient use or with alternative supplies or both in a least cost sequence. And it's not just efficient technologies, but also we could change our land use so we didn't have to run around so much because we were already where we wanted to be. We could use telecom, we could change our transportation systems, we could change business models to reward providing the most access and a nobility at least cost rather than selling more cars or leaders. And in fact, car and, car, car and oil companies are getting very interested in that. We know from history this is the best way to break OPEC's market power because we have more flexibility in reducing oil demand quickly than they do in reducing oil supply quickly and adjusting to living uh, more frugally. Um, and by the way, to replace our Persian Gulf imports these days would take the equivalent of a 2.7 mile gallon improvement in our light vehicle fleet, cars and light trucks, which we used to do less than every three years when we were last paying attention. Uh, in 1986, I identified for Shell a technical potential if we fully applied the best technologies of that time wherever they fit to save about four-fifths of U.S. oil use at an average cost under $4 a barrel in today's dollars. The technologies are a lot better now. And of course, it's important to do them in the right order because you can't spend the same money on two different things at the same time. This is what economists call opportunity cost. And therefore, if you buy a slow, costly solution instead of a quick, cheap one, you just made your oil import problem worse by achieving less import displacement per year and per dollar than you could have. So buying, say, Arctic Refuge oil instead of efficient use makes the oil import dependence worse. That's one of our costliest options and one of the slowest. Well, can cars tunnel through the cost barrier? That's a big part of the problem. 
If we get really efficient cars, maybe we wouldn't need all that oil. Well, yes, if you first make the car a lot lighter and a lot more slippery in moving through the air and along the road, uh, you could definitely do that. Uh, and I won't show you the diagram, or maybe I will actually. Hmm. Well, let's see if I get to the diagram. Uh, <clears throat> and it turns out when you start making cars lighter, they get a lot lighter still because the weight savings snowball in a nonlinear way. Some parts don't need to be as big and some of them go away. A really efficient hybrid electric car will not have, for example, um, engine, exhaust system, clutch, transmission, drive shaft, axles, U-joints, uh, I mentioned differentials, starter, alternator, that stuff just goes away. Some of it's replaced by other things, some is not. And then when you start putting more of the functionality in software, software doesn't weigh anything. The car gets a lot lighter and simpler. And basically you get to a new design space I discovered 12 years ago where when you make the light slippery car hybrid electric, running the wheels with electric motors and making the electricity from fuel on board, uh, instead of the hybrid drive making the car heavier, costlier, and more complicated, it gets lighter, simpler, and cheaper. To see this, you have to design backwards. Conventionally, Detroit designs from the fuel towards the wheels. It takes about seven units of fuel to deliver one energy of unit to the wheels. It's like that pumping diagram I showed you earlier. And since almost all of the losses are in the engine and drivetrain en route to the wheels, Detroit focuses on incremental improvements in its efficiency. Well, in designing what we call hypercars, you turn it around and you make the car lighter and lower in drag, so you don't need to deliver so much power to the wheels, and every unit of energy you save at the wheels saves about seven units of fuel that you would otherwise have burned to deliver that power to the wheels. So compounding losses turn backwards become compounding savings, and that makes triple efficiency pretty straightforward with an engine-driven hybrid car and quintuple efficiency with fuel cells. That's the diagram. Um, of the fuel it takes to run the car, only about 12% of that energy reaches the wheels. A few percent goes off to accessories. The rest is lost in conversion. How about the 12% that sneaks through to the wheels? Well, in round numbers, a third heats the air that the car pushes aside, a third heats the tires and road, and a third accelerates the car and then heats the brakes when you stop. You notice the mass shows up in, in the second and third of these terms, so it's kind of a double whammy if you can make the car lighter, especially if you then get mass decompounding. So we just start in those green boxes on the right and make them smaller, as in the lower part of the chart, and uh, then take the compounding savings back to fuel. Now, in a conventional car design, you have a goal of maybe saving fuel. And it is assumed, perhaps from economic theory, that this is going to make the car uh, squinchy, sluggish, unsafe, and expensive. In other words, it's got to be a trade-off or a compromise. So you need government interventions to get people to buy the car anyway. In hypercar design, you make the car better at the same price, and people buy it because it's better. It's kind of like, why do you buy digital media instead of vinyl phonograph records? It's not because polycarbonate got cheaper than polyvinyl chloride. It's because it was a better product and its superiority to redefine your market expectations. 
And by the way, if you design the car to be better, you save even more fuel. This is a little bit like the Taoist uh, remark about by doing nothing, nothing will be left undone. So my Zen koan for uh, car design is by not saving fuel, more fuel is saved. <laughs> and uh, you, you just get a whole series of virtuous circles making the car ever lighter, simpler, and cheaper as the weight-saving snowball. Uh, I'll skip this one. Now, <clears throat> it, also, the way to make cars affordable is to use costly materials. Conventionally, you, you design the car to be stamped and welded out of steel, which is a really cheap material per pound, but you need a lot of pounds, and steel is very costly to manufacture with. Only, only about 15% uh, of the cost of a finished steel car part is steel. The rest is the cost of shaping and finishing the steel. For example, a thousand engineers take a year to design and a year to build about a thousand car-sized, or big at least, steel dies. They're enough to fill a football field. Just to stamp the body parts, roughly four dies per part, hundreds of parts. And uh, this is very expensive, so you need to sell a lot of copies of each model to pay for all that tooling. So it's a high financial risk. It's basically you bet your company on each new model. And it takes a long time to do all this design and tooling, so by that time maybe it isn't what the market wanted anymore. So you have more financial risk, very uninviting business. On the other hand, in hypercar design, you're molding and gluing advanced composites, which are costlier per pound. But does anyone buy cars by the pound? No, I think we buy them by the car. You got fewer pounds, and this is a cheap material to manufacture with. For example, you can mold the 20 or so die sets, not 1,000 or so, uh, out of the same material that you're molding, nickel-coated epoxy, say. And you can make the parts snap together so they align themselves. It can take a tenth as much capital assembly parts and time to make. And then you need a very small propulsion system to run it. You can break even on a very low number of copies and therefore financial risk per model. Now, imagine that you're a conventional car maker. It's kind of like being the world champion sumo wrestler, and you're already in the ring and halfway through the match when you suddenly realize your opponent's not doing sumo but Aikido. And if he didn't tell you, this could be embarrassing. Now, there are some encouraging examples of how this can work. Uh, a guy named Dave Taggart, when he worked for the Lockheed Martin Skunk Works, <clears throat> led the design of a 95% carbon fiber fighter plane, which was one-third lighter but two-thirds cheaper than its largely metal predecessor because he designed it around optimal manufacturing methods for carbon, not for metal. Um, and uh, it was a little too radical, so he couldn't find a customer, so he quit and I got him, and he's now doing the same thing for cars as CTO of Hypercar Inc., uh, showing what happens when you design cars less like tanks and more like aircraft. You start from a clean sheet, you optimize the vehicle as a system, you make it real light and slippery with efficient accessories, then you run it in the most clean and efficient and cheap way by applying a lot of new hardware and software and design technologies, and you end up with something very interesting. So let me tell you a little bit about a, a little firm I, I chair that... Uh, I'm not wearing that hat today, but you can find out at hypercar.com what they're up to. Uh, and uh, for a few million bucks in eight months in the year 2000, they designed a very interesting concept car. 
which you can now see a show car of in Palo Alto at the Nowhere store with a K on the beginning of Nowhere of a company called M.G. Taylor. Uh, we have a complete virtual design that's production cost and manufacturable. And uh, with the following properties, uh, it's what's called a crossover vehicle, which designs or, or which combines basically the features of a sports utility vehicle, a van, a luxury sedan, and a sports car. And the particular styling, just to have something to talk about, was a kind of Gen X, Gen Y active outdoor lifestyle segment. But you could make it look like whatever you want. And it's really sporty, all-wheel, fast digital traction control, uh, smart semi-active suspension, variable ride height, uh, and a very stiff body, up to twice normal stiffness for a sports sedan. And you can make it look like a lot of other things, too. Um, so this is a mid-sized SUV, basically. Uh, it seats five adults comfortably, 0 to 60 in 8.1 seconds, uh, and a 330-mile range on 7.5 pounds of hydrogen with old tanks. With the newer tanks approved in Germany, you could probably get close to a 600-mile range, and uh, designed for a 200,000-mile warranty and extreme reliability. Um, part of the reason for that is that the body doesn't rust or fatigue. Uh, <clears throat> let's see, why is this not advancing? And it gets the equivalent of 99 miles a gallon, which is quintupled efficiency, uh, but it doesn't actually use any gallons. It, it uses direct hydrogen in the fuel cell, and the only emission uh, is water, so I'm tempted to put a coffee machine in the dashboard. Uh, and uh, it's also a uh, computer with wheels, not a car with chips. That is, it's designed from scratch, so essentially all the functionality is in software. It's all networked, it's all digital, it runs on a Java-embedded virtual machine, and it therefore can do a lot of really neat things you didn't know a car could do. Uh, <coughs> Hello, Mr. Gates, are you there? Yes. Now, here's a little... Um, animation of the uh, of the virtual design that's sitting on the supercomputers near Oxford. We'll go inside in a minute and you'll see that in the version we would most like to build there isn't a steering wheel and there aren't any pedals. In fact you steer and control the car uh, with either a right or a left side stick and if you want right hand drive you just stick it over on the other side. Um, it's a lot safer that way, and this is the sole user display. Uh, in fact, just the top half is normally all you see, so it's very simple, and uh, that has a lot of interesting features. Uh, and there's a little aluminum subframe in the front to hold components for traction, but basically it's advanced composite with only 14 major structural parts. Each one can be lifted by one small worker without a hoist, they snap together, no body shop, no paint shop unless you really want to, and uh, very, very low tooling and equipment cost. Now, carbon happens to absorb f five times more crash energy per pound than steel and does so more smoothly. So we think this will not just bounce undamaged off a six-mile-an-hour uh, parking lot collision, but it could hit a wall at 35 with no damage to the passenger compartment, or it could run head-on into an SUV twice its weight, each going 30 miles an hour, and still protect you from serious injury. 
I don't know any other car that would do that, actually. And again, the idea is not to need increased fuel prices or taxes or climate or environmental policy or mandates or subsidies or other random variables, but uh, just to focus on value to customers and competitive advantage to the manufacturer. That's a much more robust business model, especially in a world of random fuel price and essentially equally random public policy, often responding to fuel price. If you were to graph public policy, it would also look like that kitten with a ball of yarn <laughs> graph. So what does all that mean? Well. The U.S. potential of such vehicles of all shapes and sizes is to save about as much oil as Saudi Arabia sells to everybody. It's as if we went drilling in the Detroit formation and found a Saudi Arabia down there. It's about 42 times what might have been found in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge if the Senate approved and oil prices stayed very high. And the global potential is to save as much oil as OPEC now sells. So for the military, that means neg emissions in the Gulf, mission unnecessary would certainly free up a lot of our foreign policy. It also can decouple driving from climate change and air quality, although not from congestion. It can profitably deal with up to two-thirds of the climate problem, and it makes possible a fast transition to a hydrogen economy in a way that's profitable at each step starting now and is starting to be adopted. I'll tell you how in a minute. And you can also design the part cars to serve as plug-in power plants on wheels to provide a huge amount of electric generating capacity. And the key to the whole thing is we just made the car ready for the hydrogen. You notice that the fuel cell to do that uh, excellent performance is just this little thing back here with the X on it. And the tanks to carry you 330 to 600 miles are only those three little round cylindrical objects. So there's plenty of room in there for people in cargo, up to two cubic meters of cargo, five adults. Um, in other words, we made the fuel cell three times smaller so you can afford it even at early prices, and we made the tanks three times smaller so they fit. Well, as fuel cells, cheap plastic ones, start to enter the market, they won't be all that cheap initially, but they'll still be worth putting in buildings for combined heat and power and ultra-reliable electricity. We'll fuel them by making the hydrogen out of typically natural gas, Meanwhile, we'll introduce the hydrogen-ready hypercars, some of which will go to fleets. That's a big market, and they come back to the barn every night, so it's easy to have your own hydrogen source. The rest of them, the general market, well, try this trick. Let's lease those first to people who work in or near the buildings where we already put fuel cells by then. Well, the hydrogen appliances in the buildings are sized for peak building loads that seldom occur. So most of the time, they'll have leftover hydrogen which they can sell to the cars parked nearby, and then the cars can sell electricity and other services back to the grid and earn back much or most of the cost of owning the car. And the full national potential of doing this turns out to be, for the fleet, about 6 to 12 times the generating capacity that all the power companies now own. So it doesn't take too many people liking this value proposition to put the coal and nuclear plants out of business. Uh, meanwhile, as those hydrogen appliances are made in larger numbers to go in buildings, you know, buildings use two-thirds of the electricity in the country, so this is a big market, those hydrogen appliances will get cheaper, so let's put them also outside buildings, like at filling stations. Much better business to be in than pumping gasoline. And you can use not just natural gas, but electricity at a little extra cost to make your hydrogen 
So you're playing off two ubiquitous and competitive retail commodities against each other to make your homebrew hydrogen, and you're using the off-peak distribution capacity for both electricity and gas that was already built and paid for. It turns out if you had a national hydrogen fueling infrastructure based on these little gas reformers, it would actually cost less to build than we are otherwise going to pay to sustain the existing gasoline fueling infrastructure. Cost less, not more. <clears throat> and then as we get more uh, hydrogen and more vehicles using it, it may become justified to produce hydrogen in bulk upstream and pipeline it like we do natural gas. There are at least two proven ways to make it. One is to extract hydrogen from natural gas, which is called reforming at the wellhead and re-inject the CO2 back into the hydrocarbon reservoir, which is a standard technique now for enhanced oil recovery. Well, 5% of our gas is used right now for reforming. That's a mature technology. And you can get paid three times for the hydrogen, for the extra hydrocarbon you recover when you repressurize the reservoir, and for not putting carbon in the air. So companies like BP and Shell are very interested. North Kidro is actually already doing this in the North Sea. Uh, and, and Statoil. And you can also electrolyze split water like you did in the high school chemistry class using climate safe electricity which turns out to make renewables a lot more profitable. Uh, you make about six or eight times as much money selling each electron with a proton attached as selling just electrons. Uh, the reason being that you're, you're um, getting three or four times as much traction out of each unit of hydrogen in a fuel cell car as you would out of each unit of gasoline in a regular car. So the equivalent of buck twenty-five a gallon gasoline is electricity at about nine to fourteen cents a kilowatt hour uh, in the form of hydrogen. And also with some pretty cheap hydrogen storage you can get rid of the intermittence of wind and solar power and dispatch them whenever you want so they're worth more. Now there are probably other methods too. The Princeton work for BP suggests that it may be even cheaper to make hydrogen out of coal still with climate protection. There are other solar and renewable methods that may also work out and get out of the lab into production, but you know, one method's enough, we have at least two. And if you own hydrocarbons, you gotta think about this one. Is hydrogen worth more with or without the carbon? That is, is hydrogen plus carbon somebody will pay you not to put into the air worth more than hydrocarbon? Is a hydrocarbon worth more feeding a refinery or feeding a reformer? You figure it out. The numbers look very, very interesting. And the issue is who's going to be first. The real barriers to getting hypercars on the road are mainly cultural. It's hard to make a dozen leapfrogs at once, especially if you're a large organization. So to speed things up, back in 93, we put this work in the public domain where nobody could patent it and then got them all fighting over it. And somewhere around $10 billion got invested in this general line of development through the year 2000, which is 3,000 times what we spent to develop the intellectual property. Uh, and then in 99, just to support the industry's transition a different way, we spun off our fourth for-profit to uh, do the design and license it, and uh, we're now in discussion with automakers about that. First big adopter could, adopt it, could transform a trillion-dollar industry. And we're also encouraging new entrants like Giants Electronics and Systems companies to come in and, of course, by doing that, we put the fear of Adam Smith into the incumbents. Uh, now, with all this potential for saving energy, of course, 
it won't surprise you to hear that it's cheaper to save fuel than to buy fuel. So DuPont has said it will increase its energy productivity at least 6% a year in this decade and get a tenth of its energy and a quarter of its raw materials from renewables and cut its greenhouse gas emissions by 65% below the 1990 level. The fourth biggest chipmaker in the world, ST Microelectronics, has set a goal of zero net carbon emissions by 2010, when it'll make 40 times the chips in made in 1990, because we helped them figure out how to save 90-odd percent of the carbon per chip and make their fabs build faster and cheaper and work better, which is the real key to getting ahead in the chip business. BP just announced that it met its goal for operational carbon reductions seven years early. What they didn't announce is it saved them $650 million net in 10-year present value. So these things are being done in the name of shareholder value, which is exactly as it should be. Washington will be the last to know. And over the 50 years, you can perfectly well imagine a very affluent world that beats a three- or four-fold carbon reduction goal, which is probably what we need really to stabilize the climate instead of just chip away at the edges. Suppose that we ended up with twice as many people in 50 years, three or four times the GDP per capita, so that's a six or eight-fold grosser world product. Meanwhile, carbon intensity will fall by a factor at least two to four just due to the normal substitution of less hydrogen-rich fuels and renewables. In fact, over two-thirds of the fossil fuel atoms burned in the world today are no longer carbon. They're hydrogen. We're just talking about getting rid of the last third at a profit. Meanwhile, conversion efficiency with, will go up at least factor one and a half, probably a good deal more with combined cycle, combined heat and power, and so on. End-use efficiency could go up by a factor four to six over 50 years if we sustained the rates of improvement that we have sustained in this and other industrial countries when we paid attention. And maybe we could even improve what economists might call hedonic efficiency, which is how much human happiness and satisfaction you get out of each unit of energy service by getting higher quality, more of what you want, less of what you don't want, the sort of thing that's incentivized by the solutions economy in natural capitalism. Well, if you just do the arithmetic on these six ranges, you'll find you could get one and a half to 12 times less CO2 emissions with a six or eightfold growth in, G in gross world product. There's a lot of flexibility. The future is not fate, but choice over a very, very wide range. And in fact, the oil endgame is already starting. Many oil majors are starting to say so. Chairs of four already have, and also four automakers have said we're entering the oil endgame in the beginning of the hydrogen era. And in fact, in Shell's latest scenarios, the conventional one shows the world getting all its new energy and a third of its total from renewables by 2050. The less conventional one is a China-led leapfrog to hydrogen. I think that one's starting to happen. If you look at all the alternatives, I think you conclude that oil will probably get uncompetitive even at low prices before it becomes unavailable even at high prices. Or, as several prominent people have remarked, the Stone Age did not end because the world ran out of stones, and the Oil Age will not end because the world runs out of oil. Like uranium and increasingly coal, oil will become not worth extracting. It'll be mainly good for holding up the ground because we'll have other and better ways to do the same things cheaper. And in fact, world coal consumption fell 
96 to 2000 by 6.6 percent. A lot of that was in China. Their coal burn was falling rapidly, very rapid shift toward gas efficiency and renewables. The numbers are still fuzzy on China. This, this may be a bit of an overstatement, but if, if not, they'll be there soon. And interestingly, gross world product and CO2 emissions decoupled. They moved in opposite directions in 98 and 99. I've seen different estimates for what happened <coughs> in 2000, <coughs> whether CO2 went up 1.9% or 0.1% or maybe down a little because the numbers from China in particular are still fuzzy. Even in the United States with our economy full of inefficient SUVs, 96 through 99, our economy grew nine times as fast as our CO2 emissions. And this is without new technology, without hypercars, without tunneling through any cost barriers. Just think what we can do when we actually start doing some good engineering. Of course, this conocopia is the manual model. You actually have to go out and turn the crank. Let me end with a very brief summary of how to do that faster, how to increase the portfolio of policy tools from two to ten. Conventionally, we say the only tools we've got are regulation or innovation and laissez-faire or messing with taxes and prices. All of these things work. You know, choice is a matter of taste. But it's not all that's on the menu. Let's, and by the way, it's not even the most important thing. You know, prices matter, but ability to respond to price can matter more. That's why folks in Seattle saved electricity a lot faster than folks in Chicago even though Seattle paid half as much per kilowatt hour as Chicago. Basically, the utility would help you save in Seattle and try to stop you from saving in Chicago. So ability to respond really matters. And price is not the only way to get people's attention. How else would you explain that we've lately been saving energy in aggregate terms at a near record pace despite record low and falling energy prices for four years? So, And prices without busting barriers to buying efficiency don't do much. You know, the reason DuPont's European plants used uh, or were just as inefficient as their American plants, even though they twice, they long paid twice the energy price, is they were designed in similar ways by similar people, and there isn't much room for behavioral change in a chemical plant. So I would argue that costly energy is not necessary and it's not sufficient for very efficient use of energy, efficient in an engineering sense. It's not necessary because you can get great returns at present prices. It's not sufficient because if you don't bust barriers, not much happens. Well, that's where the eight other policy tools come in, and I'll end by saying what they are. The first one is ability to, res oops, to respond to price. There are 60 or 80 specific market failures in buying energy efficiency. There are proven ways to turn each one into a business opportunity, and we now know how to bust the barriers to create that alchemy. It ought to be at the top of our policy agenda, just as it is in smart companies. Secondly, let's reward what we want, not the opposite, so we get fair competition between efficiency and supply. For example, how about rewarding our energy distributors for cutting our bills, not for selling us more energy? California is starting to do that again, having forgotten for a while. Oregon does it. Nobody else does. 48 states get this wrong. Why don't we pay our architects and engineers for what they save, not what they spend? We get much better design that way. Let's be neutral as to the technology, the scale, the ownership, and just look at the results. 
And there's a matter of what's marketed. I mentioned those valuable side benefits, higher labor productivity, big gains in industrial output and quality, 40% higher sales in well-daylit stores, 20% faster learning in well-daylit schools. Those are a lot more valuable than energy savings. Let's market them that way. You can integrate with other goals, as Curitiba Brazil did. That's the next to last chapter of natural capitalism. You can go for those distributed benefits. You can go for breakthrough performance. So there are a lot of ways to market different benefits than payback on energy savings and still get to the same place. Different strokes for different folks. How about negative technologies? You know, we normally talk about deploying more efficient devices. We don't talk about scrapping the old inefficient stuff. And it gets, you know, installed again down the street. It goes into the secondary market, but that stuff's worth more dead than alive. Let's take it out back and shoot it. Offer bounties to hunters who will get it out of the stock. We don't even track or label or stigmatize or penalize trade in inefficient devices, so we're producing a lot of the opposite of global development. It's negative technology transfer. It holds back development. We could be causing about as much misery with inefficient motors and ballasts as we are with the global drug trade because it diverts such an enormous amount of investment away from other development priorities. How about putting that on the agenda? Then there's how designers think. Well, you've heard that story before. Let's change our design pedagogy and our design practice to tunnel through the cost barrier. Our inefficiency a design problem. Let's solve it by changing how we design. It's mindware. It's retrofitable. Then there's how quickly we deploy stuff. Why do we always talk about routine turnover of capital stocks? We could do accelerated scrappage. Give people rebates for buying efficient cars, paid for by fees on inefficient cars. That's the fee-bate part. And then base the rebate for efficient new cars on the difference in efficiency between the new car you buy and the old car you scrap. So we get the worst ones off the road fastest. That's good for Detroit. They get to sell more cars. How about mass retrofits? There are great examples here and overseas of retrofitting big capital stocks in a hurry when we wanted to. We don't even tend to coordinate outsulating buildings with the normal facade renovation or with the renewal or installation of mechanical systems. Why not? Can't we rely more on vernacular technologies that spread more like cell phones or PDAs? And of course that fits with the ready, fire, aim style of leadership rather than incremental management. Then there's how business is done. You know, industrial capitalism only productively uses and reinvests in two kinds of capital, money and goods. It ignores two more, nature and people. Natural capitalism plays with a full deck, and with all four kinds of capital, you make more money and have more fun. That's being pretty rapidly taken up. And uh, part of that is advanced resource productivity and a business model that rewards it. This has profound implications for energy and everything else kinds of demand. And then, of course, what's driving demand for energy services in the first place? There's population. There's affluence in how we measure it, how we keep score. There are questions of who gets what and who decides and how. And how happy is more stuff actually making us, the sort of issue that redefining progress works on. You know, Ecclesiastes had this remark about, um, let's see, what was it? He that hath silver shall not be satisfied with silver, nor he that hath abundance with increase. This is also vanity. 
I think most religions teach something about that. We're finding, in fact, that markets make a great servant, a bad master, and a worse religion. Economic fundamentalism doesn't get you very far. And late Dana Meadows used to remind us about the importance of meeting non-material needs by non-material means. Anything else is vanity and ineffective and stupid. And, of course, how do politicians decide? Well, if you go to nepinitiative.org, you'll find some work that Dan Kamen and I were part of called the National Energy Policy Initiative, organized by two nonpartisan nonprofits with arm's length foundation funding. We interviewed 75 diverse constituency leaders, then convened 22 bipartisan energy policy leaders, and reached a broad consensus on an energy approach that could meet the country's energy, economic, environmental, and security needs simultaneously without compromise. It's very encouraging for a fractured Congress when you look at what those wildcatters found when they drilled down through the polarization and got a gusher of consensus. You know, half of our endorsers are or were senior energy industry execs. Others included some pretty heavy hitters and uh, certainly enough to get some attention. Uh, I know that adopting consensus is not the customary way of getting anywhere with energy policy in this country, but the more we focus on stuff we agree about, the less necessary will be all the things we don't agree about. seems to work. I want to end with an example, a little compact fluorescent lamp. I should have brought one along. By now, everybody knows what they look like. It costs 3 to 12 bucks, saves four-fifths of the electricity used by an incandescent lamp, lasts an order of magnitude longer, looks similar, fits the same, lets you see better, and it makes you tens of dollars richer over, your life, over its life. In fact, Southern Cal Edison gave away a million of them because it was cheaper to do that than to run their existing thermal power plants. Over its life, one of those light bulbs will avoid putting a ton of CO2 in the air and other bad stuff, or making two-fifths of a ton TNT equivalent of plutonium and half a curie of the main long-life wastes, or it'll avoid burning a barrel of oil. It can cut by a fifth the evening peak load that crashes the grid in Bombay. It can raise a North Carolina chicken grower's profit by as much as a quarter. In rural Haiti, it can raise disposable income by as much as a third. And it needs about 10,000 times less capital, as Ashok and I found out, than expanding the supply of electricity. About 1,000 times less intensity, dollars per kilowatt, and you get your money back 10 times faster. So it can make the power sector, which now gobbles a quarter of the world's development capital, into a net exporter of capital to fund other development needs. It's the key to making solar power affordable for poor homes, especially in the countryside. And then girls can learn to read with all that that implies for the role of women and for population. There's almost half a billion of these lamps being made a year. World leader is China. What I'm talking about here is a lot more than saving energy. It's really about making the world safer. One light bulb at a time is a pretty good way to start. You know, you can screw it in yourself. So here are the energy surprises. Energy prices will become less dispositive. Our economic tools and experience will become more and more misleading. Economic policy instruments could become optional, if not counterproductive. Our big energy institutions may become irrelevant. Our climate and air problems can be solved at a profit. 
We may, meanwhile, have some episodes of overshoot if we forget some history. The oil endgame will accelerate. Policy will be outpaced by market and by technological discontinuities. The uh, hydrocarbons may be worth more for the hydrogen than for the carbon. Low capital intensity and high velocity will be the order of the day, especially for enabling leapfrog global development with a lot of learning traveling from south to north, not the other way. Brains are evenly distributed, one per person, so most of the brains are in the south. And we can't exclude the possibility that wholly new sources of energy might be found, of which the most interesting, of course, is the discovery of intelligent life on Earth. Uh, there are some promising specimens turning up in this search. As we near our prelims, our species final exam, you know, is going to be whether this zany evolutionary experiment of combining large forebrain with opposable thumbs turned out to be a good idea. Well, we'll find out, but I understand the Hopi elders have recently remarked, we are the people we have been waiting for. Thank you. There is a lot of deeper digging to do and a lot of work to do. Thanks for coming.